Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From WNYC Studios, you're listening to Snap Judgment. Classic. Snap is, I want to let you know that if you're not comfortable with things like autopsies and coroner's reports, this story contains some graphic imagery. That said, I strongly encourage you to keep listening because our guest name has to be the coolest name of anyone we've ever had on the show. Snap producer Joe Rosenberg takes it from here. town of Ringgold, Georgia, is your classic southern small town. Nestled in the northwest corner of the state, along the border with Tennessee, it's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone's story. Which means that everyone knows the story of what happened to McCracken Poston. Today, McCracken is a lawyer with a small practice in town. But 20 years ago, he was the district's state senator. And in 1996, I lost by landslide. I raced for the United States Congress. I was the first Democrat since the Civil War to lose this district. And I lost every county. So I said my goodbyes, gave my concession speech for the media. I basically saw everybody out, thanked them all, locked up the campaign office on the end of the block of this old historic block in Ringgold. And I was walking back to my vehicle when I heard this voice uh, that was coming from a long shuttered Zenith television repair shop. And it said, you got beat, didn't you? And the, the voice from the shadows belonged to Alvin Ridley. Alvin Ridley had been a uh, TV repairman in town for all of my childhood. But the place had been shuttered inexplicably in the early 1980s, and everybody said he just kind of lost his mind. He uh, probably was there that night posting some of the missives on the inside of the glass that he always did, accusing the local government of running all his customers off. He had allegedly threatened people's lives when uh, they had uh, crossed him, and he had become more and more reclusive. His house was frightening looking. It was boarded up. The once open porch had been closed in with keep out and no trespassing. And the 
feeling of neighbors and children was that he was the boogeyman. It didn't scare me, but, you know, I continued walking. I didn't think of him anymore. And then uh, October 4th, 1997 happened. I went into town, and people were excitedly talking about that there was a dead woman found at Crazy Alvin Ridley's place. People just didn't know if this was a rotting corpse or skeletal remains or the last thing on anybody's mind was a freshly dead woman, which is what it was. So when that word came out, everybody was saying, well, who is that? Uh, Who's missing? And then the wave of information came out that he says it's his wife. Did, Did you know he had a wife? No. It was a shock. I had no knowledge that he had a wife. Nobody that regularly interacted with him knew that he had a wife. The deceased's name was Virginia Ridley, and records confirmed that she had in fact been married to Alvin for many years. But beyond that, no one knew anything about her. Where had she been all this time? What had she been doing? More to the point, perhaps, what had Alvin been doing? Probably the, the, the thing that kind of made everybody suspicious from the beginning was that Alvin did not behave like you would expect someone to behave if you woke up and found your spouse in bed with you dead. This is Kimberly Barnes. She was the editor of the local paper back in 1997. And she says that although there wasn't much solid information at first, What was eventually learned about Alvin's behavior on the day of Virginia's death didn't look good. In in the the conversation that he had with the 911 operator, he was very, you know, flat. It was very much, my wife is dead. There was no emotion. You, You got nothing. Alvin told the authorities that Virginia had died from an epileptic seizure. But death from epilepsy is incredibly rare in this day and age. So Alvin's story just didn't ring true to either the coroner or the medical examiner. And when the coroner got to the house, he didn't want to let them in the house, which of course made them think, okay, what are you hiding? Well, they found family of his wife and had them come identify the body. And they told a story that Alvin Ridley had been holding their loved one against her will since approximately 1968. Virginia's family had tried multiple times over the years to see her, but Alvin had always told them that she didn't want to be bothered, even to go to her own father's funeral. They had a hard time believing that, as did everyone else now. And the story was that he kept her in a basement, only let her out when he was home, and then just decided to kill her. So if you wanted to paint a a grim picture, you got that picture, you know, very plainly. Now, they had not charged him yet. So he was walking about free. And so just a matter of days after that news came out, I started running into him. And in the exact same spot every day. And the second day, I remember he just cast a look at me and nodded his head back and kept going. 
And I started realizing that he it was by design that he was waiting on me. And so Monday or Tuesday of the next week, just as a kind of a test, I just stopped in my tracks. And I said, uh, how are you doing, Mr. Ridley? And uh, he screwed his mouth up and looked almost like a child that was had his feelings hurt. And he started crying out. He was lashing out. Alvin started rambling about a long list of grievances, conspiracy theories, vendettas. The town, he was sure, was out to get him. It was as if the suspicions surrounding his wife's death were just the final straw. He said, oh yeah, and they're, and they're saying that I uh, held her for ransom, and then I killed her. Well, the first thing out of my mind was just what I had been through in my campaign, because this was a town who had completely rejected me, and I said, I know exactly how you feel. And I think it just was kind of a joke for me, but it it just kind of hit him as somebody who was connecting with him. <laughs> and so he uh, he thought he could talk to me. But as they kept talking, it started to become clear to McCracken that Alvin wasn't just looking for a sympathetic ear. He needed a lawyer. And where in the past I would have been very wary that uh, Alvin Ridley was guilty. How is this going to affect my politics? Suddenly, with a vengeance, I didn't care. I almost wanted to represent him to get back at the town who had rejected me. So I said, if you want me to help you, we've got to meet. When Alvin was arrested for Virginia's murder, to everyone's surprise, McCracken not only represented him at the hearing, but was able to get him out on bail. Of course, everybody's pointing and whispering and talking about him. And seeing me with him, you know, their their once state representative and failed congressional candidate started another wave of whispers. And the rumors were so prevalent that Alvin had kept his wife hostage. They weren't even saying allegedly. They were saying, you know, did he kill her after keeping her hostage for 30 years? Meanwhile, the only person who was really getting to know Alvin was McCracken. And McCracken wasn't sure what to think. He he was 56 years old, and he looked much older. I don't think anybody would choose to have the life that he had. He always was wearing clothes that were old. He always did keep his hair combed well, and he was always shaved, which I thought was interesting since he didn't have running water in his home. So he had a bit of pride about him but but he was starting to fall apart he started wearing this neck brace it was like one of these collars that people who fake car accidents wear it it was a pacifier in a way it allowed him to look pitiful and feel pitiful at the same time but this one was so old and sweaty and brown that it really just reeked Finally, I said, Alvin, do me a favor. Before we go to court, I want you to go down to the truck stop, shower, take you some clean clothes, because it's really getting hard to sit next to you, buddy. Well, I was working at my office that night, and a skunk was in my air conditioning duct, and it sprayed up where I visibly saw spray. It settled on all of the files of the case. It got on me, 
And I go to court the next day, and Alvin Ridley gets to say to me, I don't know if I can sit next to you. And it was a realization that sometimes we can't help our circumstances. McCracken ended up with a lot of anecdotes about Alvin like this. Ones where Alvin would somehow manage to turn the tables on him, in a fun way. But Alvin never really seemed threatening to McCracken. If anything, he just seemed confused and scared. Harmless. And then finally I got the state discovery packet. And this is when I first saw the autopsy. Before McCracken had represented him, Alvin had been obsessed with trying to get the state not to perform an autopsy. And now McCracken thought he could see why. It was some pretty damning stuff. The medical examiner looked at a body that was a delicate, small-framed woman, about 49 years old, with petechial hemorrhages around her eyes and mouth, which are indicative in cases of asphyxiation. What did that say to you about your client? Well, you know, I knew that bad things happen to good people. I didn't know if it was possible that they had had a fight. I kept, I tried to keep my mind open, but I felt like he had probably done it, that he was grieving terribly over it. And, uh, but it was, it was uh, what I thought. Compounding that was the issue of Alvin's home, where they'd found Virginia's body. The same house, with all the keep-out signs and boarded-up windows. And I'd been asking to get in his home for months with a camera, and he just wouldn't let me. He was acting so strange not letting me in. So here we were a couple of weeks before a potential murder trial, and I had nothing. I had nothing as a defense. Then there was the matter of jury selection. It's very hard to pick a jury in a small town for somebody like Alvin Ridley. Almost all of them knew him by reputation. Almost all of them had heard about the case. That was a huge thing to overcome. And I was not completely confident with the jury that we got. I, honest to goodness, never in a million years thought I would be picked on that jury. Never. I mean, it, it was a joke for me even to be there. This is Kimberly Barnes again, the journalist. She just happened to be called for jury selection that day. But of course, she had been covering Alvin's case. In most courtrooms, even having read an article about a case is enough to get you kicked out of the jury pool. And it was like, okay, yeah, I'll go down there. I'll collect my 40 bucks. And, you know, they will dismiss me and say, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Glad to see you go on home. (laughs) Yeah, that didn't go so good. Apparently, that's not enough to get you off the jury. And uh, and she got on, and I thought, now, how is this really going to work? Did you feel like, um, were you regretting taking on this case by, at this point? Oh, it was not just me. I had a judge tell me, well, everybody's saying you two deserve each other. And uh, so, it, you know, it was another... Uh, another uh, potential failure in the making. When Snap Judgment, the Dirty Work episode returns... 
The Trial of Alvin Ridley. Don't miss a moment. Snap Judgment, the Dirty Work episode. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Dirty Work episode. And know this, Snappers, we're about to play the second part of a two-part story on the murder trial of Alvin Ridley. Our own Joe Rosenberg takes it from here. In hindsight, it's easy to see that McCracken Poston had made a terrible mistake. One shouldn't go out of one's way to represent the scariest man in town on a murder charge. But he had. And now McCracken was beginning to suspect that one judge was right, that he and Alvin deserved each other. Just before jury selection, he had found two key pieces of exculpatory evidence. It turned out that another autopsy of someone who had died from an epileptic seizure demonstrated that such a seizure could produce the kind of particular hemorrhaging around the eyes and mouth found on Virginia. That would support Alvin's version of events. But for McCracken, it wasn't enough. It mitigated toward reasonable doubt. And that's the only way I thought about it right there. Because I still had that nagging doubt. You know, why would the woman not want to get out and see her family? Why would she not want to go to her father's funeral? You know, what is going on with this mystery woman? And here's his own lawyer begging to get in that house, and he keeps putting me off. Well... Thanksgiving came, and toward the end of Thanksgiving dinner, my parents said, we want to package up some food, and we want you to take it to Mr. Ridley. Well, that's the last place I wanted to go on Thanksgiving. But without calling him or anything, I drove back to his house, and I've got a couple of grocery bags, and he comes to the door and opens it, and I said, Alvin, my folks wanted you to have some food for Thanksgiving. He looked at the bags he looked at me and he said wait just a minute and he closed the door and I can hear him inside like he's talking to somebody and then he comes and opens the door and I get to go into this very very strange place the first door is a closed-in porch and and it was not a pleasant place to be there was a lot of uh, vermin and a lot of uh, just odor But when you turn to the right, you go into basically the main room of the house. I can't see anything well because the whole room is is dark and it's illuminated by like a single red large Christmas light bulb. But then a regular bulb comes on. And right there in front of me, along one whole wall and part of another wall, there's all this, this stuff And it was just about every type of paper or cardboard that you can imagine, that that anything that could bear ink. And it was attached to the wall in every way you could attach such to a wall. The cardboard, the heavier stuff was nailed, stapled. The paper was taped. And when McCracken looked closely, he could see that every item was covered from top to bottom in writing. And it was all done in this very unique hand. And I said, Alvin, what is this? And he said, well, Virginia wrote it. 
Virginia had something that's not uncommon in patients with epilepsy called hypergraphia. It compelled her to write down everything that she possibly could write down. She'd had the condition for decades. And from the tens of thousands of documents, I found something from just about every month of 27 years. She talked about the moon landings. There's a poem. There's a a funny reference to something going on in town. She wrote three U.S. presidents. The most interesting thing was that she had written a proposed script for the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. And I couldn't believe it. I said, Alvin, I gotta have this. The problem was, Alvin said, you can't have any of this. It's all I've got left of her. And so I had to compromise with him. On the first day of the trial, when Alvin and McCracken walked into the courtroom, everyone noticed the same thing. Alvin's got these suitcases that look like they're from 1954. And we were all wondering what was in the suitcases. And at one point, the suitcase is sitting open and you see McCracken kind of reach over with his foot and kind of start stomping. And that foot keeps stepping out further and further away from the desk. And, and he's, he's stomping roaches. I had cockroaches crawling all over me. I had to be on constant watch. They were crawling on our table. They were crawling up my tie. They were, they were about to drive us crazy. And, of course, the jurors all are sitting over there just, you know, cracking up, um, you know, because we didn't know what was crawling out of those suitcases next. But when he opened them up, what they were were Virginia's testimony. And the jurors were leaning forward, spellbound, because here is the mystery woman that no one knew existed speaking out from the dead. Whether it was on the back of an envelope or a grocery receipt, the answers were there. You know, this whole thing of, you know, that, you know, he kept her locked up in a way from her family. Well, no, because she had written that her family was now Alvin. All of her writings were Alvin and Virginia, Alvin and Virginia, Alvin and Virginia. So she was choosing to be there. In her writings, Virginia explained how she never ventured outside because of her epilepsy. She had always been painfully shy, and her greatest fear was going out in public and then having an epileptic fit. And in one of the five Bibles that she filled up the margins with her own writing, on a date in 1977, she wrote, I've stopped taking my medicine today. God has told me he's going to take care of me from here on. And she lived 20 years not medicating. And that, of course, set her up for the classic sudden death and epilepsy case. The same kind of sudden death and epilepsy that produces the same petechial hemorrhaging around the eyes and mouth that the medical examiner had interpreted as a sign of strangulation. And, and what was happening is the, the better things happened, we started getting a little following in the courthouse. And one of my lawyer friends, he came up and said, you've got this thing won just as long as you keep Alvin Ridley off the stand. And I just said, yeah, that's the plan. There's no way I'm going to put him on the stand. And, of course, that's when I sent Alvin to lunch and... Jesus appeared to him in a vision during lunch and told him that he had to testify. 
Were you surprised when Alvin took the stand? <sighs> Floored. And you kind of saw McCracken when he when Alvin was going to the stand, this look on his face like, well, it's all done with now. And I was very frightened that something was going to come up that I wasn't expecting. Alvin had uh, done enough strange things. And what made it more frightening for me was that this man is innocent. I didn't know what to think. I wasn't convinced that the prosecution had made their case that, yes, you know, he had done these things that he was accused of, but, you know, we're all capable. I was I was still sitting on that fence. But when Alvin took the stand, I remember somebody asking, did you have children or why didn't you have children? And his response was very sad in, no, we were never blessed. So what you got was Virginia was his whole world. And as we were waiting for the jury, he got very quiet. And I saw the concern on his face because any sentence of just about any length with Alvin would have been like a death sentence. I, I didn't know if I had done enough. I didn't know if uh, I could do enough. And as I stood in the corner of the courtroom at the window, kind of facing out, I realized that I was not only praying with him, but that I had my arm around him tight, shoulder to shoulder. I didn't smell him. Nothing about him bothered me at that moment. We had been through a war together. And then the court clerk lets the judge know that the jury has a verdict and you just would have to hear his voice. Just this booming in the Superior Court for the County of Catoosa, State of Georgia, criminal action number 98 CR 836, the State of Georgia versus Alvin Eugene Ridley, and all this buildup and you're quaking in your seat. Verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant. Count one, not guilty. Count two, not guilty. Count three, not guilty. The courtroom erupted. McCracken probably fell out of his chair, and Alvin started crying. I truly don't think he believed that it, that it was going to come back not guilty. And then we walked together out on the courthouse steps, which was a special place for me because that's where... I had accepted my first election. That's where I had conceded my last defeat in politics. And uh, being with Alvin on those steps was the best of all of those times. For Virginia's family, the courthouse steps also had a special meaning. They were the last place that they or anyone else had seen Virginia in public 17 years before. Joe, I have one more thing that I left out. Throughout the case, I would get frustrated with him. And I would ask him, I would say, why did you stalk me? Why were you constantly making sure we were running into each other? And why did you pick me? And he would always say, I'll tell you one day. 
But that was such a classic put-off from Alvin, I didn't think anything of it. And then at the very end of the trial, we're in my office, and I just, you know, I guess I just said, Alvin, thank you. You know, this is a special thing for me to be a part of. And I said, "Why you told me you were going to tell me one day why you picked me. And he said, I'm going to. And he has a VHS cassette. And on it was my name in Virginia's handwriting. I pop it in the VCR, and it is the one televised debate of my congressional race in 1996 and he said she always liked you McCracken Poston continues to practice law out of his offices in downtown Ringgold Alvin Ridley's house sits just a few blocks away. Now, we reached out to Alvin for this story, but he declined an interview saying that he values his privacy and that he still loves and misses his wife. It's been 19 years since she passed away. The original score for that story was created by Renzo Gorio, and the piece was produced by Joe Rosenberg. It's about that time. You made it out, but know this. There's plenty more snap where that came from. Get the amazing storytelling podcast delivered to your phone each and every week. Subscribe right now. Right now, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever service you use, it's there. Snapjudgment.org. The snap is produced by the crew that always gets their hands dirty. Make some noise, please, for the Uber producer, Mark Ristich, Pat Masidi Miller, Anna Sussman, Julia DeWitt, Joe Brass Knuckles Rosenberg. Nancy Lopez, the collector. Dave Eva, Snub Nose, Kim. Work in the back room, got Eliza Smith. Anna Adlerstein, Leon Morimoto, and Matt Ducat. Jasmine Aguilera isn't trying to hear it. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you can run away, join the circus as a magician, get dunked underwater, wrapped in chains for the amazing escape finale, only to realize you left the secret key on your dresser. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is PRX. PRX.